Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to Time of the Season, written by founding member, keyboardist, and driving force behind the legendary 1960s British invasion band The Zombies, Rod Argent. Argent wrote the band's best-known classics, including the top 10 single Tell Her No and the number one hit She's Not There, which Rolling Stone ranked at number 297 on the list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. By the time the Zombies' 1968 LP, Odyssey and Oracle, was released, the group had disbanded. Time of the Season became a surprise hit from the album, however, reaching the top five on the U.S. charts. Over time, Odyssey and Oracle has become a cult classic and was ranked in the top 100 greatest albums of all time in both Rolling Stone and Mojo magazines. Rod went on to form the band Argent, scoring a top five hit in 1972 with Hold Your Head Up, which he co-wrote with former Zombies bandmate Chris White. Additionally, the group recorded the original version of God Gave Rock and Roll to You, which was subsequently covered by Kiss. After the demise of Argent, Rod threw himself into session work, playing piano on the Who's classic single, Who Are You?, and working extensively with Andrew Lloyd Webber. He released a handful of solo projects, produced successful albums for artists such as Nancy Griffith and Joshua Cadison, and toured as a member of Ringo Starr's All-Star Band before reforming the Zombies with original lead singer Colin Blumstone in the mid-2000s. Rod's songs have been recorded by The Ventures, Dusty Springfield, Vanilla Fudge, The Mindbenders, Del Shannon, Santana, Steppenwolf, Uriah Heep, Juice Newton, Eric Clapton, Dave Matthews Band, Susanna Hoffs, Tom Petty, America, Mother Love Bone, Ronnie Spector, and others. The original lineup of the Zombies, Rod, lead singer Colin Blunstone, bassist Chris White, and drummer Hugh Grundy, have just released a career retrospective coffee table book called The Odyssey. They'll launch a tour this month in celebration of the 50th anniversary of the recording of Odyssey and Oracle, and will perform the full album in its entirety. Well, uh, before we get into talking about all things Rod Argent, we have some contest winners that we need to reveal. The big reveal from our last episode, uh, yeah. Natalie Hemby. Yeah, you know, actually, we've we've done a couple contests before. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to be doing a lot more contests uh, in the future here, but I will say this, the Natalie Hemby uh, autographed copy of Puxico giveaway. We actually have two autographed copies of her album, Puxico. More entries for this than any contest wow. we've ever done before. Well, uh, I would like to read the names now of our two lucky winners yes. who received signed copies of the Puxico album. Yep. So, um, drum roll, please. <laughs> drama, drama, drama building. <laughs> Eva Snyder. Nice. You are the lucky winner of a signed copy of Puxico. Congratulations, Eva. And Elise Yulo is our second lucky winner. Nice. Both names start with E. That's a total coincidence. Oh, yeah. I don't want to hear about any tomfoolery. I didn't even or think about that. Or anything like that. Yeah. This was a, uh, a blind drawing. But I uh, <laughs> want to say to both of you, congratulations. Thank you for entering. Thank you for listening. Um, and yeah, like Scott said, we're going to have a lot more contests on the way. I think, um, I think the, the universe likes the letter E this week. Uh, this episode brought to you by the letter E. <laughs> <laughs>
Actually, Maybe we could get a sponsorship yeah, from the letter E. <laughs> yeah, yeah, E's got a lot of money. Um, this episode actually may be brought uh, by the letter Z, though. Uh, yes, absolutely. Z for zombie. Yep. The zombies and <laughs> and Rod Argent and what a cool catalog of work. Yeah, that guy. Uh, I mean, she's not there. Is one of the songs that everybody awesome. just sort of knows. Yep. But if you go, just go listen to it right now, and you'll be like, "This song's even more awesome than I thought right. it was." It's yeah. just a killer song. Um, the zombies actually right now are kind of doing this um, big fiftieth uh, anniversary of the recording of their uh, Odyssey and Oracle album, which I mentioned at the top of the show, and they have put together this really cool uh, book um, yeah. that uh, all four surviving original members basically it's their oral history of um, their experiences in the band. There's handwritten lyrics to 22 songs. There uh, is um, original artwork that goes with each song. There are remembrances and stories from people like Brian Wilson. Um, Tom Petty wrote the, uh, the forward for the book. Um, You got uh, cage, the elephant beach house, Patty LaBelle, like it's it's completely like wide spectrum of, of friends and musicians, music journalists, people who are kind of weighing in on their thoughts about the zombies. And it is a really cool coffee table book. Yeah. And the book looks so cool too. Just the look yeah. of it is so consistent with, with the, the records artwork and with the time and, and the photography's great. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a really awesome, uh, awesome product and everybody involved with it should be super proud of it. Yeah. Um, and are we giving one of those away? We absolutely are. So that is the next contest. Um, I will be in, uh, New York next week, moderating a panel with the four original members of the zombies at uh, strand books in Greenwich village. And we're going to be talking about, uh, the book and, uh, they're going to be signing copies. So I am going to personally, get a copy signed for uh, a lucky Songcraft listener. So nice. um, that's going to be our next contest. So if anybody wants to participate in that, and everybody should, then uh, go to songcraftshow.com slash contest, and it'll give you all the details on how you can enter to win a signed copy of that brand new Zombies book, hot off the presses, by the way. And I will also have a copy tomorrow, and I will be standing at the corner of La Cienega and Olympic <laughs> at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> And I will just hand it to somebody. Just hand it. So if if one of you guys wants to just drive up there, I think there's a <laughs> like a Philly cheesesteak place. Yeah. And I'll be outside of there with a book, and I'll hand it to you. Yeah, don't do that. Paul never leaves the South Bay area. <laughs> He's not coming up there. I just wanted to sound like I had a cool event to go to too. But yeah, well, you know, standing on a cheesesteak is a good a good event. Well, uh, we could sit here and talk about the book all day, or we could hear Rod tell his stories about his uh, awesome songs and career. Want to do that? Let's do it. Rod, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, now, the Zombies originally formed around 1961 with you and your friends kind of playing cover songs together as schoolboys. Um, how did you guys actually first get the chance to record? Well, the thing is, the background of the band is that um, I, I first heard rock and roll through my cousin, Jim Rodford, who is our current bass player. And um, way back in 1956, I think, he played me... Well, in 55, he played me Bill Haley, which I was sort of half interested in. But in 56, he played me Elvis, and I was completely blown away with Hound Dog and and, uh, That's All Right, Mama, and some of those very early Sun records. Sure. Um, And 
just after that, Jim um, formed a skiffle group, hmm. um, and it was fantastic. It was the it was the it was the best group in the in the whole in most of the south of England actually. Yeah. Um, and I desperately wanted to be in a band from that from the point of being eleven years old. When I was uh, still uh, 16, I think, I think I was 16, I managed to put a, a sort of disparate a group of people together, met Colin for the first time on the first rehearsal. <laughs> wow. Um, and uh, we started from there. And, and it, it was with huge enthusiasm and, and lot, not a lot of knowledge, but we, you know, we, we just, we kept at it. Um, yeah. And um, we... Uh, we built up a, a really big local following, actually. It was very exciting. Yeah. For those first three years until we turned professional, we, we, we built up a big uh, local Hertfordshire following. And we entered a competition um, at the end of that. And it was about time when we were leaving school and some of us were going to apply to go to university, which wasn't a completely general thing at the time. But yeah. um, anyway, I got a place in, um, in, at university and... Um, a couple of the other guys um, were about to move on, you know, to further education. Um, but this, there was a competition called the Heart Speak Competition. The Hearts was H E H E R T S. That was short for Hertfordshire. Huh. Um, so it's the Heart Speak Competition, um, and we won it. And uh, one of the prizes, uh, well, the prize was a recording. I uh, was recording at least a single with Decca. Oh wow! Um, and um, we, uh, the, the guy who was going to produce us for the session, uh, said to us, "Why don't you try and write something for the session?" I'd written one song before. In fact, it w- I'd written two, and I'd I'd forgotten about the first one that I'd ever written. Yeah. Um, and it was actually written for Jim Rodford's group, and it and it does exist. It was actually recorded. I didn't realise until much later oh, really? that it was recorded. Um, at Olympic Studios, believe it or not. It's called um, The Lonely One, and it's very derivative of the Beatles. <laughs> um, but um, it's, um, it's quite charming, actually. <laughs> yeah. I, heard it, I heard it recently, and I thought, blimey, this is a lot better than I ever remember. So <laughs> even my first song was recorded. I went away and, re- and wrote She's Not There for the session, mm. and Chris White went away and wrote You Make Me Feel Good, which turned out to be the B-side yeah. um, uh, uh, in the end um, for, for the first record. And, you know, the record came out, and it was a hit all over the world. And extraordinarily, many years later, we found out that um, Elvis had it on his jukebox. What? So wow. in, in a period of eight years from... Um, you know, from hearing Hound Dog for the first time and being knocked sideways, uh, uh, we had a number one in Cashbox, a uh, number two in Billboard, I think it was, yeah. um, in the States, and Elvis had our record on his shoot. Wow, that's amazing. Extraordinary. The thing that's so interesting to me about She's Not There, especially considering it's the second song you ever wrote, is that it's definitely not the typical three-chord rock song that someone might expect from that era. Well, no one told me about her, the way she lied. 
you put that one together okay well um I've, I've occasionally written songs like this where i start with the germ of an idea and just spin a story um so i needed a point to start from and i put on an old john lee hooker album that i bought right and there was a song on there called no one told me now i i rushed to add that nothing about the song or the lyrics has anything to do with she's not there right except for that little um, lyrical phrase, yeah. no one told me. And, and I, I quite like the way that just slipped off the tongue. So I, I started weaving a story about the fact that no one told me. Uh, what, what did no one tell me? No one told me about <laughs> her, you know, and the way she lied, and, and the fact that other people knew what was going on and I didn't, you know, that sort of thing. And, yeah. and, and, and that was the lyrical idea of the song. That's where the lyrical idea of the song came from. Huh, right. Um, even by that time, even while I was still in love with the Beatles, and st- well, I still am, and still in love with Elvis, early Elvis, which I still am, right. um, I, I discovered Miles Davis in the group, uh, the great group he had around 1958 with John Coltrane and Cannibal Adderley, it was a pianist called Red Garland at the time. It later became Bill Evans in that group. Wonderful band, yeah. wonderful group. And I still play those records. Yeah. Um, and I'd listened extensively, and, and I'd fallen in love you know, with jazz, uh, with, with the Mars band in particular, and with the first real fiery Hammond that I'd heard with, from Jimmy Smith, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So um, I didn't think that any of those things were actually... Um, affecting how I was writing. Um, but they obviously, in an indirect way, did. And where I thought I was just being the Beatles, in a way, you know, re- um, writing She's Not There, and, and, and off we went to record it. Um, uh, many years later, when Pat Matheny first started this band, I was introduced to him. And he said, Rod Argent, you wrote She's Not There. He said that was the record with all those modal influences that made me feel that I had a way ahead doing what I wanted to do. Right. Wow. I was completely knocked out to hear that. And I thought, there's nothing modal um, about She's Not There. But then I went away, and I played over the intro again to myself, and I realized that on those opening chords, what I'd thought of was just an A minor seventh to a D chord, I'd actually put a little modal phrase without even knowing what I was doing. Huh. Um, wow. Because those sort of indirect influences you know, were there. Right. Well, huh. That was that, um, and I think that was probably, even though I didn't think in any way I had anything to do with jazz or anything on that record, yeah. but um, that was probably one of the reasons why, even at that time, we were doing a lot of keyboard solos yeah. on the tracks that we were playing, um, and that's probably why there was the piano solo, the electric piano solo in the middle of She's Not There. From, from the, con- the other construction of the, of the song, it, it has a very unusual uh, structure because it starts from a very bluesy, melodic scale um, with the verse, you know, no one told me about her, the way she lied, how many people cry. And then it goes into a second section where all the harmonies come in. Right. right. And I wanted lots of harmony on the, on, on the record because even at that time, we were doing harmony on everything, yeah. even as a semi-pro uh, band. Um, and do you know what? There was a, a little chord sequence, a little chord change that was going on that I heard... 
uh, on a couple of things. Um, uh, uh, the only one I remember now is a Brian Highland record called Sealed with a Kiss, hmm. where I liked uh, just a D major to a D minor chord change. It's a tiny thing. Right, right. Yeah. But I like that, and I thought, why don't I, instead of putting the bass notes on the chord, why don't I put the third on the, the D major and then the third on the D minor? So huh. it was a little half-step rundown. Yeah. Um, instead of playing the bass notes of the chords, I had this little moving bass line, which really appealed to me. So that was that was the second section of the song. And the third section was where it built to a real climax. And I just had it in my head to just uh, change the meter of the lyric so that it, it just built up momentum to finish um, on a major chord right. before going dropping down to a moody minor chord again for the for the verse and that they were the elements really yeah. that went into the song and such a classic and of course i mean you guys followed that up right away with tell her no which was another top 10 hit in the u.s and if she should tell you come closer and if she tells you with a charm I understand there was a little bit of um, kind of Burt Bacharach influence in the in the composition of that song. Tell me about that. Very much so. Um, I'd uh, uh, along with a lot of people at that time. I mean, much more so than now. I think probably because now, when people write, they've got access to great drum loops and bass loops and things, and you can get something that sounds pretty amazing immediately uh, when you sample a couple of things. But in those days, the only way to make anything really work was to get a really interesting chord sequence or um, an interesting structure, something inventive in the way of writing yeah. that sort of teased the ear right from the from the, the blueprint of the song. Um, and um, amongst other things, you know, as I say, I, I was listening to a lot of jazz and I was knocked out. With it. Bert Bacharach was the first guy that I was aware of, at least in that current period of writing, that had these um, these sort of marvellous, Coloured chords. It, when I say coloured, I mean coloured by harmonics. Um, yeah. He was using. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm saying too many musical. Oh no, um, no, it's good. No, it's great. It's te- great. Technical things, but um, he was using major sevenths, major ninths, he, he had, and even a thirteenth chord here and there, and which was very unusual in pop music at that time. Yeah. Um, and I loved it. I loved that sound. I thought I've got to write something using some of these voicings. Um, and I was completely self-taught, so I just worked them out for myself, really. Yeah. Um, but um, it was very much hearing some of his chordal voicings, which he which he took from you know other musical forms, really. Yeah. And, but which really, really interested me, and still do, I have to say, to this day. Um, and and then built a song which was so different from "She's Not There" in its harmonic content, um, but you know, in a way, sort of. Sh- Shared shared the mood, I suppose, in a, in, in, in a different sort of way. Um, but um, it, yeah, it, and that came from hearing and being knocked out with those early Bacharach songs. Right. right. How did you get exposed to those songs originally? Um, well, um, only by Dionne Warwick, who we who we toured with in 1965 over yeah. in the UK. Um, but a lot of people were covering, 
you know, to the complete chagrin of, of Dion Warwick, they were they were covering Dion's songs, <laughs> Burt Bacharach songs, over here in the UK before they could be released here. You know, right. things weren't so um, synchronised in those days. Right. Um, and, um, and, and I heard some of the Bacharach things through uh, Scylla Black doing them, um, uh, uh, you know, but but always as uh, almost always as covers of of the original American records. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting to me um, that the the first two Zombies hits, uh, she's not there and tell her no. You know, were also later covered by uh, Santana and Juice Newton, respectively, who who both had hits with those songs. And of course, a lot of people have, have covered the zombies, uh, over the years, but what's that experience like for you to hear songs that you've written be, you know, covered by other artists and sort of hear other people's interpretations? Well, it's fantastic. I haven't heard that many covers that I've really loved, but certainly the Santana was the first, was one of the first ones. I did enjoy the Juice Newton song, actually, that version. Um, but I love the Santana version because Santana were one of my favorite bands when they first came out. And they went for a, a, a little while at uh, one point um, in the 70s without having certainly a hit single uh, for quite a long time. Yeah. And the fact that She's Not There was the song that brought them back to the, the top 20 in, in, in the States was fantastic for me. And particularly as I thought it was such a brilliant version, I'd always felt a sort of Latin influence in that song, uh, you know, rhythmically within it, uh, in a subtle way. And the fact that that was um, emphasized by Santana and in such a great soulful version, I I was just completely knocked out with it. That that was one of the songs, that was one of the covers that I really loved. Another one, which is much less well-known, Dusty Springfield, almost the only song that I ever wrote for somebody else deliberately, because we were on tour with Dusty in... um, in the UK, um, and um, she said to me at the end of one week, before we started the next week's touring, will you think about writing me a song? So I went away, and for some reason I had an idea immediately, and I wanted to do it in a, a Motownish sort of way, um, and I wrote a song called If It Don't Work Out. Hmm. Um, and I played it to, to Dusty on the Monday, and she loved it. And she and she recorded it, and it became the opening track on an album she had called "Everything's Coming Up Dusty." Yeah. Um, and I loved her version of that. You know, "She's Coming Home" is one of the zombie singles that fell just shy of the top forty here in the U.S., but it really captures the spirit of that era. I hear some Phil Spector influence on that record. Is that something you guys were aiming for? No, not particularly. Um, we had a, a period. Uh, the producer we had, um, a guy called Ken Jones, was an old school producer, and he always had his ear to what he thought the latest commercial sounds were. Hmm. And um, 
while we absolutely loved what he did on our first session where we recorded She's Not There, You Make Me Feel Good, It's All Right With Me, and Summertime, the Gershwin song of Summertime. Yeah. We loved all those. We thought he, he absolutely nailed it, and we loved it. But on subsequent records, we often got very frustrated with his idea of balance and production. And in those days, there wasn't a lot you could alter because you only had four tracks. Right. And, and we weren't allowed in on the mixing sessions anyway. So once they were put down in the sort of balance that he heard, that was it, pretty much. Um, uh, even when you tried to remix them again, you know, you had to do it just with the four tracks that you had. Right. Um, and he, he'd obviously heard you lost that loving feeling. Right. Yeah. And... I mean, I still think that is a very commercial song. And we have done it on stage from time to time. And I love doing it on stage. And it feels earthier and funkier when we do it. But it sounds very commercial to me. Yeah. Um, and yet, when when uh, Ken produced it, I think he took some of the balls out of it um, and and some of the earthiness out of it and some of the the equal three-part harmony, if you like, just just different ideas that we had of being a more honest sort of production. Yeah. And, and so we were quite disappointed with the production. I still love the song, and I still love doing the song, and it goes down great when we do it live. Well, another song I want to ask you about is The Way I Feel Inside, which uh, Zombie Lore has it was actually written in the bathroom. I'm curious about that story. It was written in the bathroom. Um I remember it being on the tour that we did with the Isley Brothers and Dionne Warwick uh, in the UK. So that may may have been in 64. So the thing was, we were on the bus, big two of us, and uh, we got off for a, you know, a, a pee stop and a coffee break sort of thing. Right. And I went into the bathroom and I suddenly, I don't know where this came from, but I suddenly had an idea um, for the song. And I stayed in there for about 20 minutes and got into real trouble because when I got off, everyone said, where the hell have you been? You know, that you've held the whole bus up, etc. And I, I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, and, and so I was in the, the loo, the, what you would call the bathroom, and, um, and I'd written on a scrap of paper pretty much the whole tune right. with some of the, the lyrical ideas. And uh, I finished it really quickly. I, I didn't, I mean, I probably didn't finish all the lyrics at that point, but it was finished pretty quickly. Uh, and it only struck me later that the sort of uh, the humorousness of um, <laughs> writing, writing a song called The Way I, I Feel Inside While Sitting on the Loom, which takes away some of the uh, romantic yeah. potential of the song. But, you know, that wasn't what it was about. Right. Now, you were talking about um, kind of getting the idea and having the idea for the melody. When you would get an inspiration like that would you actually write down the the musical notation out of your out of your head as as notes on a page yeah i wrote those notes down i i, I drew five lines on a, on a piece of scrap paper and wrote and wrote the, the melody down wow um uh, i i went to a period in my life where um maybe from about 19 from the late 70s um and, and 80s particularly i wrote a lot of music for television and if I had a theme to write for a program, I would never go anywhere near a piano. I would always take a piece of manuscript paper, walk around the garden, and away, deliberately away from the piano, I would jot down the melody that I heard. Wow. Huh. I mean, I think that's probably a fairly unique way for most pop and rock songwriters to operate. 
Yeah, I think it is. But you know, sometimes it means that you end up with a broader melody. Yeah, hmm, absolutely. By doing things that way, because hmm. uh, you don't get diverted by interesting chord changes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. You're just hearing, some, and sometimes the chord. Certainly with me, sometimes the chord changes I imagine to be behind the melody I'm writing in my head can sound very ordinary, and then you have to take it somewhere slightly different. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's discuss uh, the Odyssey and Oracle album, which, of course, has become uh, an absolute psychedelic cult classic masterpiece over the years. Um, I think the one thing that uh, that I'm sure you've addressed many times, but uh, I know our listeners would uh, would love to to get the lowdown, is why the uh, the the word Odyssey was spelled the way it was. I'll tell you the the whole of the real story. What what actually happened was that. Um, Chris White and I shared a flat with a third guy called Terry Quirk. Terry was the um, uh, Terry worked at an, at an art school as a teacher. Um, uh, we thought he was a terrifically talented artist and yeah. loved his style. And when we did Odyssey and Oracle, we were still on tour. Um, and Chris and I said to him, "Can you come up with an idea for the cover?" And he and he he, he said, "I'd love to." And he came up with the first drawings of, of his first ideas and we absolutely loved it and we said well look we're off on tour just finish it terry uh, we love it you know you just go ahead you know the, right. the, the the world is yours and and he did that took it to cbs who loved it and carried on while we were still on tour we came back and they said to us on the phone we love it uh, do you want to come in and see you know what we've got right. and chris and i walked in looked at it and uh, we looked at each other and said well it's great but Terry spelled Odyssey wrong <laughs> and, and, and I said look I'll tell you what we're, uh, and then we said well that'll have to be changed right. and CBS said uh, sorry you know schedule won't permit it's done <laughs> oh no it's been, it's been to the you know whatever the process is oh. we're too far down the line you can't change it and I said well I'll tell you what I said we'll, we'll, tell, we'll even tell the other guys this um, uh, that um, it's a play on words of the word ode oh, and the okay. word obviously being a journey, you know, a journey of adventure. Right. So it's a journey in words and songs, etc., etc. <laughs> we, we'll say that. Well done. And we told the other guys that too. And I was telling this story um, when Colin and I had got, actually got back together again for this incarnation. And we were doing an interview and I, I told this story. And Colin looked at me with his mouth open <laughs> and said, What? He said, how oh, come you've never told me that after all these years? <laughs> <laughs> so that's honestly the story of it. Right. Oh, my wow. gosh. That's amazing. <laughs> well, we'd like to ask you about some of the classic songs on Odyssey and Oracle, starting with the opening track, Care of Cell 44, which has gone on to become a fan favorite and was covered by Matthew Sweet and Susanna Hoffs. Started off. I, ha- I had a little musical phrase. Yeah, in fact, I started off strangely enough with the opening bass phrase of the song. You know, boom, 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 and that was uh, that was the, the first bit of writing on the song. Um, and then 
just worked out the first little chord sequence with a melody, and I just started to write a love song. And, and it felt jaunty, you know, and it felt optimistic. Right. And I started writing, good morning to you, I hope you're feeling better, baby. And that was all that was in my head at that time. Yeah. And then I, then I started thinking about it and spinning a story. And I thought, well, why, you know, rather than just saying, you know, this is a, you know, a love letter from me to you sort of thing or a conversation, a love conversation uh, in, a, in, a, in an optimistic way, in a successful romance, why don't I turn it on its head a bit? And what could be, you know, what could be a different angle to come at this from? And then I suddenly got the idea. I mean, maybe I'd read something, I don't know. But I, I don't remember that. Yeah. But I suddenly got the idea of turning it round and, and, and making it a, a, a letter uh, to someone in prison who's, uh, and being excited huh. because they're going right. to renew their relationship and they're going to come out soon, you know. Yeah. And in that very non-judgmental way, that, that, and, and, uh, you know, because it was a real time of not, non-judgment and tolerance at that time. Yeah. Um, and, um, and that was lovely, actually. Yeah. And, and it was written in that spirit, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I hear the, the title had to be changed. <laughs> it did, yeah. <laughs> I know Carousel 69, um, <laughs> which they wouldn't accept, so, so it was Carousel 44. <laughs> was, that, uh, was that original title done with a wink, or was that purely accidental? Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about uh, "Hung Up on a Dream" because I mean that's that's one of the more like really sort of trippy psychedelic type of songs on the album. understand that probably unlike a lot of your contemporaries that psychedelic drugs were not really uh, a factor in your songwriting process they weren't at all and and i often think that the way that um odyssey was recorded now i know that most people weren't even aware of it until 1969 you know which was a really sort of peak year for lsd experiences etc and people um experimenting with all sorts of drugs it was recorded in 1967 and those things were only just starting hmm. to be um uh, we, we were only just starting to be aware of those things then it was only really around that time that the beatles were first of all uh, introduced to lsd by their dentist right um right. you know who, without them knowing um gave it to them hmm. um you know, and it, and it changed their life at that time. Yeah. Um, but um, we were sort of breaking up, really. Huh. Yeah. We were recording the album and then breaking up, so we weren't around. The, the group had broken up by the end of 1967, so we weren't really exposed to all that. So I often wonder if we if we've been saved from some of those things. You know, and, and but also. When it started to happen, it was never something... It always felt a little bit crude to me. Huh. It was, uh, you know, an undeniable effect, but it always almost felt like, you know, putting a spanner into a computer, if you like, getting huh. a um, a dramatic effect, but, but but it just felt in a slightly crude way. And so, I, temperamentally, 
I don't think I was ever particularly attracted to drugs. Um, I never minded other people doing them. You know, I never, I ne- never disapproved of, of other people, but it just, it just never really felt for me. And I think that was probably true for all of us, actually. Yeah, interesting. Well, of course, the song on Odyssey and Oracle that everyone on the planet knows is "Time of the Season." What's your name? Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? He rich. Is he rich like me? Has he taken us any time? We'd love to get your thoughts on that one. Well, again, written pretty quickly. Um, Colin and I remember that as being written uh, almost immediately before we recorded it. Um, It was the last song on the album. Um, We needed one song to finish the album, and I went away and wrote it. I remember writing it in the flat, um, so I was certainly in the flat sharing it with Chris by that time. Um, And I remember playing it to him and saying, Chris, I think this could be a hit, you know, even just playing the idea through. Um, So that was my feeling right from the beginning. Now, Colin never saw it as a hit. Hmm. at the beginning. Yeah. Um, but I, I honestly say that, you know, um, a lot of things I have got wrong, but that one, I, I I thought of as being possibly a hit record. Yeah. Um, it felt simple and soulful and, you know, with an atmosphere, etc., etc. Um, we recorded it, and because Colin didn't know it thoroughly, um, I mean, I, I've always been great friends with Colin throughout our whole lives. Um, right. But um, that doesn't mean we didn't used to have um, blazing arguments sometimes, <laughs> right. uh, particularly in the earlier days, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, there was one time, sorry, I'm digressing here completely, no, but great. there was one time um, during an early tour, I think it was in 65 in, in the States, when um, uh, Colin got a lift from a, a good-looking girl to go from one gig to the next he didn't realize they were 800 miles apart and he turned up um with it with, with this girl and her boyfriend i hasten to say oh. <laughs> she didn't realize either right. um a, a minute after we'd gone on stage and we'd been given the keys to the city at that time right and i and i'm i'm embarrassed to say i can't remember exactly where it was um i could find out i guess but um and and I was screaming at Colin as he came on stage behind the curtain. And as we were screaming, we didn't realize the mics were on and all this was going on in front of stage. And, um, and the curtains opened and there we were smiling, singing something like, I love you or something like that. That was quite funny. But um, with um, Time of the Season, uh, Colin was, was singing and I was in the control room saying, no, Colin, it's, it's just pushed a bit there. It's not, not quite like that. And he got really exasperated. He said, "Look, if you're so fucking good, you come and you you come and do it." I said, "Now oh, come on, Colin. <laughs> you know, um, it sounds great. You know, just you know, stick with it." And and, and that's how that's how that the atmosphere of that session went. And it always <laughs> amuses Colin particularly because it's you know it's the time of the season for loving, right? right. <laughs> and, 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 and this was going on in the background, but right. you know, but these things happen, and and um, it, it's soon forgotten. Yeah, yeah, little little irony of the uh, the lyrics. <laughs> oh, another thing to say about time the season is that 
you know, quite often I have little things that I throw in as, as little uh, personal um, uh, allusions or whatever. And um, I, I, I told you that on our very first session we, re, we recorded Summertime, and it's a song we still play now, the Gershwin Summertime. Yeah. And um, one of the verses in Time of the Season, um, What's Your Name, Who's Your Daddy, Is He Rich Like Me? Um, it's just a slightly affectionate nod um, to the verse in Summertime uh, when, when they sing um, Your Daddy's Rich and Your Mama's Good Looking. Yeah, um, interesting. That's just a little sign, just that, that, that little little allusion to that lyric, yeah. little reflection on that lyric. Yeah. What was kind of the process that led to Time of the Season becoming a hit after you guys had already completely disbanded? Well, um, what actually happened was that it came out um, in the UK. The, the album got great reviews, mm. but it didn't sell. Yeah. And it came out, and we'd released the first single, which was, I think, was um, Care of Cell 44, which n- never even, hardly got played on the radio over here. Um, so we all broke up. And unbeknownst to us at that time, Al Cooper, who was the real hotshot producer at the time with Super Sessions and... Uh, he'd obviously been on, you know, like a Rolling Stone, but he'd, he'd produced Blood, Sweat and Tears. Um, he'd been hired by Clive Davis as uh, as the, the the hot new A&R guy. Yeah. And he was sent to England to check out what was going on. And according to Al, he came back with 200 albums. And he, he went up to uh, Clive and said, there's one album that stands out. Uh, he wrote like a rose amongst thorns. There's one album that... that that stands out from everything I've heard in, in the UK, and it's this. And he, he said to Clive, you've got to find out who's got this over here, and it doesn't matter what it costs, you've got to buy it from them. And Clive said, well, we've got it, and we've passed on it. <laughs> and he said, well, you can't pass on it. And, they said, and Clive said, okay, we'll release it then. <laughs> and so they released it with um, the first song, first release was um, Butcher's Tale, which is crazy because it's, it's still one of my favorite tracks on the album. It still gives me chills hearing that. Right. Great Chris White song, but never a single. Yeah. Um, and, and then I, I believe the second one they released was Care of Cell. Then they released, I think, um, Friends of Mine. Uh, I may have this in slightly wrong order. I don't right. know. But then, as a last resort, Al wanted them to release Time of the Season. And they did, and nobody played it. Hmm. And then, after... After a little while, um, one tiny station in Idaho, in Boise, Idaho, uh, one DJ started playing it. And in the way that things could work in those days, because obviously it it was never a one- or two-week chart or anything like that, things could gradually catch people's attention and then sort of spread out with a ripple effect. It did just that. And we didn't even know for six months after it started this, this process that it was gaining momentum until we got a phone call from Al Gallico, who was our publisher in the States at the time, who said, I just got to tell you that time the season is going up the charts and it's making real waves. Hmm. And we couldn't believe it. Um, you know, the, just kind of the story of, of you guys breaking up and then deciding not to get back together. Um, the fact that you and Chris produced Colin's solo album, and obviously you and Chris worked together um, with Argent, um, seems like you guys all worked together well. So why why did the zombies break up in the first place? It's purely commercial. What actually happened was um, that those early records, um, anything that any any royalties that we would do 
as artists on the records um, came through to us, and we we actually got what what we were were due. Yeah. So there was a certain amount of money, which by 1967 had dried up a lot. You know, before time of the season came out, had yeah. dried up a lot. But from a writing point of view, we later found out that our records were played all over the world, and different tracks at one point or another would be a hit in many different territories. Yeah. So because we had very, very honest publishers, Chris and I always had a good income coming through. Right. The rest of the guys, a large amount of their income, certainly by the latter part of the three years that we were together professionally, um, was comprised of UK gigs. Huh. Now, there was a, quite a lot of ripping off that went on. Um, and we never made money, ever, out of performance in those days. Um, so it got to the point where Colin, the non-writers, Colin, Paul Atkinson, and Hugh Grundy, were very short of money. Sure. And it got to the point where there was a particular trigger where um, Paul Atkinson said, look, guys, I'm getting married. And he said, I- I've, got, I've got to change my, my path because I'm, I haven't got enough money to sustain a marriage really he said I'm sorry but I've got to leave and Colin and my memory is that Colin said yeah uh, um, it's the same for me really you know uh, this is going nowhere but we were always friends and Chris and I hated the thought of the band breaking up at the time well you and Chris of course continued to make music together when you formed Argent a band best known for the single Hold Your Head Up which was a top five hit in both the US and the UK in 1972 During the Zombies era, you and Chris tended to write songs separately, but Hold Your Head Up is credited to both of you. How did your mode of collaboration change over the years? Um, Hold Your Head Up was written from Chris hearing an early Argent performance of Time of the Season. And we, we, we were getting ourselves together, so to speak, in the classical way, and um, we were doing really long sets, and so we were having to stretch things out. And we did a version of Time of the Season, and we were improvising um, things in it. And we improvised a riff and went into something that we'd never played before. Huh. And Chris heard this groove and loved it. And this, this riff that we hit, loved it and wrote a song around it. And that song became um, Hold Your Head Up. Wow. Oh, wow. But, but I will stress, all the lyrics were his. The, um, the Melodically, the tune was his. Um, and... The, the basic guitar phrase, you know, the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, yeah. that, that was his too. Yeah. So the majority of the song, the meat and bones of the song, were Chris's. Uh, now, I did get involved at that stage in, and um, um, with some of the, the chords in various parts of the song. Yeah. Um, uh, but the actual you know, meat of the song was, was definitely Chris's, even though we had decided... Uh, on anything we wrote separately 
to put our joint names on. And there was usually a, um, a, a bit of um, modification from one or the other. Right. I have to say that. Yeah. Um, it, with, with most of the songs as well. So the collaboration was there in that way, but it was normally a main idea um, from one of the writers. Well, I understand that after Argent disbanded in the mid-70s that you got into doing some session work, including playing piano on some tracks for The Who, including Who Are You? in 75 and I've been on the road for about um, 12 years or something um, and I'd really had enough at that time um, and I thought that was the end of me being on the road but I thought um, I do fancy stretching my boundaries a bit so I thought for a year this was my thought when I first came off the road um, anything that it, I won't do anything myself I won't do any writing um, but anything that is interesting from a different avenue that happens to come up I'll say yes to. And one of the first things um, was uh, Roger Daltrey asked me to play um, on his solo album, One of the Boys. Huh. And I did that. Yeah. And Roger really liked what I'd done on the album. And then obviously spoke to Pete and said, and they said, we'd like you to come and play on, on the Who's Next album, which was Who Are You? Now, the thing was, I put a month aside for that. I seem to remember it was a month. Um, and I went to their studio, which is quite a long distance for me, every day. Um, but because there was so much going on for the Who at the time, in terms of business and the meetings, um, um, I only ever completed three tracks. Huh. Uh, one was Who Are You? One was Love Is Coming Down, although I don't believe I'm credited on that, but that hmm. is 100% me playing piano on that track. Huh. Um, and there was a third track that John uh, Entwistle wrote, and I can't remember the name of it. It's got had in the title. If I had you or something, I can't remember. Um, but I played on that as well. But working with the Who, it wasn't that they took forever to record. They didn't. Um, I remember doing Love Is Coming Down and Who Are You in probably three or four hours each. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it was just that there was an awful lot going on for them um, yeah. um, from a business point of view, obviously, which I wasn't privy to and I had no right to be right. and they would go upstairs and have their meetings they were quite short days they would they would tend to finish around four or five anyway yeah and so it, it didn't always leave an awful lot of time to actually record so that that's why i didn't do more on that album mm. well you've worked extensively with andrew lloyd weber and i know you've done at least three solo albums of your own that i'm aware of uh, the third of which is classically speaking which is all solo piano pieces um, and you've mentioned the, the jazz influence, and I know you've also written for TV and the stage. Um, there seems to be a very broad palette in terms of your musical influences and, and what you draw from. Obviously, far beyond the typical, uh, you know, pop rock kind of thing that people might think of when they think of a guy from a rock band. I, I, think, I think that's true. I mean, I think it was true right from the beginning. I mean, I always grew up loving music, so I was listening 
at the same time, I'm being knocked out to Elvis and Little Richard and Jerry Lewis, while at the same time being knocked out with Stravinsky and Bach, and by the same time being completely blown away with hearing Bill Evans for the first time and hearing Miles. Yeah. So I didn't see any difference. I know it sounds a crazy thing to say, but I still don't. I think if something works, it's sort of in a way, you know, is water from the same well. Hmm. And um, and it's still a you know a privilege to be able to... And to have been able to sort of dip my finger, in a way, into all these different genres. Yeah. Um, and and to have people from the different genres of music actually sometimes quite liking what I've done is is just feels wonderful to me a real a real privilege. Yeah, and obviously you're still very actively writing and composing and performing, especially with the zombies making records again. And I want to ask you about one of your more recent songs, "Moving On," which is the opening track on your most recent album, "Still Got That Hunger." I won't cry for the past, for I've refound my free. I won't shy from the strife What doesn't kill me will fill me with life And I'm moving on Well, moving on, I mean, I have to say, before talking about the music on on um, Still Got That Hunger, you know, we love playing all the old music, but always within the context of feeling there's a creative path forward. Hmm. It has to have that context. Right. Sure. Um, and that's what energizes us more than anything else. Now, Moving On was a song that unbelievably was started in 1977 when Elvis died, my first rock and roll mentor. Huh. And hmm. along with many other people, I just couldn't believe it. And I was completely um, deflated by it. And, and, and I felt lost. And I wrote this couplet, one couplet, um, which was, at the time, the couplet was, I'm moving on like a ship sailing windblown. August moon, can you tell me where I'm bound? Because it made me feel lost. Hmm, yeah. and, and then I forgot about the song, completely. Uh, and then I lyrically finished it just before we wrote the music for um, Still Got That Hunger, hmm. all these years later. <laughs> and I wrote it. Um, it wasn't about Elvis anymore. But it, I'd read a story somewhere about um, um, a young woman whose life had been traumatically changed by a couple of things that had happened in it. Um, but she was saying, I'm not going to be defined by this. Um, you know, I'm going to move on and I'm going to look to tomorrow, basically. Yeah. And she said, you know, that, that phrase that you often hear, uh, um, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Hmm. And I thought I would include... I'd start with this song that I started all those years ago about feeling lost because of something unbelievable that had happened, which was Elvis dying. Mm. And it made me question where I was going myself and, mm. and where I was in my own journey, even all those years ago. Yeah. Um, but then I incorporated her story and then a few things of my own, as songs often do. Um, you know, a few of your own um, emotions and, and, and feelings about what you're writing about. Yeah. Um, and I changed, um, I thought it was a little bit more poetic to just change um, what, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger into um, what doesn't kill me will fill me with life because it had an internal rhyme and yeah. it just felt a little bit more powerful to me. So that was the journey of that song. Very cool. 
Well, and that's one that the fans can hear live when you guys hit the road in less than two weeks with the current lineup of the band, plus all four surviving members from the original group. And um, I understand that you'll be playing a mix of classic hits with some new songs, as well as the entirety of the Odyssey and Oracle album from start to finish, which will be pretty amazing. Um, and our listeners can go to rodargent.com to see those tour dates. Uh, but first, our New York listeners can join us in person on March 15th at Strand Books in Greenwich Village, where I'll be moderating a panel with you, Colin, Chris, and Hugh about your new book, The Odyssey, The Zombies in Words and Images. And I know uh, I would love to chat with some of our New York Songcraft listeners afterwards. Plus, the original Zombies will be there signing copies of the book after the event, which is a, a great opportunity for all you Zombies fans to, to snag a great piece of rock and roll history there. Um, details for that event can be found at Strand books.com and if you're not able to join us you still have a chance to enter to win a signed book simply go to songcraftshow.com slash contest for details now, rod it was great speaking with you yep. and i look forward to seeing you in new Absolutely. york next week oh great stuff well, nice to talk to you thank yeah. you thanks for listening we'd love to stay connected with you so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com like us on facebook and follow us on twitter you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. Please don't bother.